Welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann, and today we're talking about the coronavirus. What exactly can you do to protect yourself and your loved ones? We'll hear from one expert who will give us some practical tips to stay safe. And we also wanted to talk about protecting your mental health through all of this. How can you keep yourself from panicking, even when it seems like everyone around you is doing just that? Our mental health expert will give us a bit of perspective. As you know, this story is moving fast. These interviews were recorded earlier this week. And while some things have changed since then, like the World Health Organization calling COVID-19 a pandemic, many of the things we need to do to take care of ourselves are still true. And WebMD's news team is tracking all the latest developments on coronavirus. You can find their coverage on WebMD.com and also on our social media feeds. Okay, let's get started. Our guest today is William Schaffner, MD. He's an infectious disease expert and a professor at Vanderbilt University. He's helped WebMD's readers, and now you too, to understand many infectious diseases over the years, including the H1N1 swine flu in 2009 and Ebola in 2014, and the regular flu, influenza. He's here to help us understand what's going on with the coronavirus, how to prepare for it, and what you should do and not do if you think you might have it. Dr. Schaffner, welcome to Health Now. Well, hello, Carrie. Good to be with you. It's good to talk to you. I want to just jump right in here. What can you tell us about how the virus behaves once it's in your body? What is actually, or what is it actually doing to your airways and your lungs? Well, once it enters your body, you breathe it in, and it seeks out the cells on your mucous membranes in the back of your throat and the back of your nose sets up shop there, and then moves down into your bronchial tubes. It's causing inflammation. So along the way, you start to get feverish, you get a little bit of a sore throat, and as it gets down into those bronchial tubes, it causes inflammation that causes you to cough. And so those are classic symptoms. The cough is not very productive. Now, that's a mild infection. It can also circulate throughout the body and begin to affect other organ systems. And our own body's inflammatory response, which works up in order to fight off the virus, can sometimes do some collateral damage. And in addition to fighting the virus, it can cause damage to our various organ systems. That makes you even sicker. You can get kidney damage and liver damage. Most importantly, though, This virus can leave the bronchial tubes and get out into the substance of the lungs and cause pneumonia. And when that happens, if it's bad enough, you're going to have difficulty breathing. And it's pneumonia that is most severe and has caused many deaths. Okay, so you've mentioned the range of symptoms, I guess, that we're seeing in terms of severity, or the range of severity, I should say. Obviously, many people around the world have died from this infection, but we also hear that many people can be infected without ever showing symptoms. So where do most people, would you say, fall within that range? That is the range, all the way from little or no symptoms to really quite severe. And as we go up the age range, it gets more severe. In fact, one of the striking aspects of this virus is that it spares children, largely, Children have not been prominently affected by this virus. So as we get older, the likely severity of the illness increases. 
And of course, as we get older, we tend to develop underlying illnesses that we have. So older people, particularly those with heart disease, lung disease, diabetes, who are immunocompromised, those people are all those more likely to need hospitalization, admission to the intensive care unit, and I'm afraid they're at risk of dying. Since we're talking about older people, obviously they seem to be at a greater risk from the virus. Besides hand washing, what can they do to protect themselves from exposure? Or if they do get exposed and have symptoms, what should they do? So we'd all like to not encounter the virus. And what we've been uh, advised to think about is what has been called social distancing. What does that mean? Well, in addition to hand washing and greeting your friends with an elbow bump instead <laughs> of a handshake, this is a virus that is transmitted most readily from person to person within three to six feet of each other. And so it stands to reason that the more people we greet who are within three to six feet of each other, the more likely we are to encounter the virus. One of them may be a carrier and transmitting the virus to us. So the recommendation is that people who are older and have these underlying diseases specifically avoid group events, avoid crowds, particularly large crowds. Hmm, that means maybe not going to the concert or the basketball game. It means if you're a religious person, being reverent at home rather than joining the congregation. So you want to think about these sorts of things. Uh, travel. Is your travel really essential? While you're traveling, you're going to encounter a lot of crowds. Most of us travel on airplanes. You know, that's a long silver toothpaste tube <laughs> full of people <laughs> close certainly together. Not, there's certainly not three to six feet between you and the person you're sitting next to on the plane. Right. Uh, particularly the folks two rows in front and two rows in back. So rethink those things and those activities. Change those aspects of your personal life so that you're at somewhat greater remove from people. Don't stop living obviously, but do those things that kind of separate you a little more, particularly when people are in groups. So is, would you say that advice is for especially older folks who might be at greater risk, or is that just general advice for anybody? Well, it's rather good advice for anyone, but we're putting the emphasis on those people who might get more severely ill. Older persons, and people with those underlying illnesses of any age. That makes sense. So if I'm sick, at what point should I suspect that it might be coronavirus? The main symptoms, which we've kind of mentioned here, are fever, cough, and shortness of breath, and those are pretty common for several types of illnesses. <laughs> yes, they're awfully common, and you can't tell them from influenza. So we're in a kind of a funny place right now. If, of course, you've had international travel recently yourself or had close contact with someone who's been traveling internationally, that's something to bear in mind. You might be more likely to have a coronavirus infection. 
But in any event, at this time, just as testing for coronavirus is becoming more available, you might want to pick up the phone and call your healthcare provider and ask about the availability of testing and whether the, your provider thinks you ought to be tested. And certainly, I think if you're older and have those underlying illnesses again, those are the people we're going to focus on the most, as well as international travelers and people who've had contact with international travelers. But the testing is rolling out as we speak. It's not always available immediately. You may have to get in line. And then I just would like to emphasize, don't just show up in your doctor's office or at the clinic or walk into the emergency room. Call first. Let them be prepared for your arrival. And to that point, how do you get to your doctor's office if you don't if you live in a place where you're taking public transit, maybe, and you aren't supposed to really be around people, um, how, what is, can you give any advice for how you actually get to your doctor's office without putting others at risk? <laughs> I knew you would ask me tough <laughs> questions. Uh, we're talking about folks who can't just take a taxi or an Uber because it might be too expensive and they're going to take public transportation. People who are sick and coughing and such, if they're asked to go to their provider, they are the people who should put on a mask. And those people ought to, even if you don't have a mask, separate yourself as much as possible from others in the bus and maybe even take a scarf and wrap it around the lower part of your face. It's not perfect, but it might help reduce your disseminating the virus to other people in your neighborhood. Okay. And speaking of protecting others, uh, if you find that you are, if you have been diagnosed with the virus or you think you might have it and you need to quarantine yourself at home, how do you do that when you live with other people, maybe a partner or children or maybe older parents? Well, the quip answer is uh, with difficulty and carefully. Yes. <laughs> uh, I mean, obviously, you uh, will be eating in your own little bedroom, which is where you will stay. Other people will try not to get too close to you. Uh, they should be uh, washing their hands a great deal or using the hand hygiene gels and, and wipes all the time. You will be careful not to cough and sneeze in anybody's face. Uh, they could wear masks in the home as they encounter you or are within the three to six feet of you. That might help them also. So it's, it's a matter of doing the best you can under the circumstances that you find yourself in. And just being aware of what your, you know, your contact with other people. Being aware is uh, half the battle. And having family members who take care of you understand that they also have to keep their distance. Okay, I want to run through, if you don't mind, a couple of specific things that I think a lot of people are wondering about. Um, I'll go through item by item, and maybe you can give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down and, and why <laughs> you might, <laughs> and a reason behind your answer. Does that sound okay? Why, sure. All right. Wearing a face mask if you are not sick. That's discourage. We discourage the use of face masks because, first of all, wearing a face mask by people out in the community has a scant 
scientific base to show that it actually works. And that's why, if you think about it, the CDC doesn't recommend use of face masks annually during influenza season, because that, if they work, that would be the prime time to make that recommendation. The other reason is that if everybody out there is getting face masks, we're likely to have a shortage in the medical care environment where healthcare workers are dealing with really sick patients and we need that protection. So face masks in the general community, could they provide some protection? Maybe, probably pretty modest, not enough to make a recommendation that everyone do it. Okay. What about wearing a face mask if you are sick, but you're not sure if you have the coronavirus or not? In circumstances where people are ill, wearing a face mask, actually, that's what those face masks are designed to do, you will actually reduce the amount of virus that you are exhaling into the general uh, environment. And so that is beneficial to those around you. Now, having said that, I'm going to say, wait a minute, if you're sick, why aren't you at home? What do you mean wearing a face mask and coming to work? No, 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 no. You, excuse me, take a sick day. You should be at home. We have a couple of questions about travel here, which I think is top of mind for a lot of folks. What would you say about traveling to one of the affected countries? Maybe not to Wuhan, China, where the the outbreak started, but maybe Japan or Italy. Not a good idea at this time. You would have to have a really powerful reason to go. Uh, your grandmother is very ill. It's a major family event or something like that. But we wouldn't recommend travel to an affected country at the present time. And this goes double for people who are older and have underlying illnesses. All right. What about airline travel within the U.S., just general airline travel? At the present time, everybody ought to think about, is this essential trip? Could it be postponed? Do I really have to take this trip right now? I'm going to say it again. It goes double, if not triple, for all those people who are older and have underlying illnesses. They really should stay home now. And I'm going to guess that your response is the same if I ask you about taking a cruise. Oh, the recommendations have come right from the top. This is not a time to take a cruise. What about more local travel, like taking public transit like a bus or a subway? I think the risk there is really very low. But uh, be aware. Look around you. You don't want to sit right next to somebody who's coughing and sneezing and has been inconsiderate enough to take the bus. So... Uh, be aware of your surroundings. And if you are one of these extra meticulous people, take some wipes along. So when you hold the railing or the pole to keep yourself steady, uh, you can wipe your hands immediately after. That's a good idea. I hadn't thought about that. What about people who feel very nervous touching things in public spaces like doorknobs, elevator buttons, stair handrails with your bare hands? Is that okay or not? Well, uh, you'd like not to fall down the stairs, so use that <laughs> banister. And uh, we have to get through the door, and we can't wait around for someone else <laughs> to open it for us. So go ahead and do that. Ah, 
hand hygiene. That's the answer to that. Let's not try to go around disinfecting the entire inanimate environment. It's the hands that are the final common pathway. Let's do good hand hygiene. Do that frequently during the day. Soap and water, 20 seconds at least. Is that right? The, still the general advice? That's right. Sing the happy birthday song and make sure you get the back of your hands and your thumbs. Those are the areas that people usually miss. And then the other thing I would mention is, oh boy, is this hard. Don't touch your face, particularly your nose, (laughs) mouth, and eyes. We all do it constantly, unconsciously. Try to reduce it, I would say. I have one more question for you here. What about taking a supplement that claims to boost your immune system? Claims are frequent. Data are rare. Uh, So as we say, in God we trust, all others must provide data. There are no good data to show that any supplement really provides any special kind of immune boost or protection against the coronavirus or influenza. All right. Is there anything else you keep hearing people worrying about around the coronavirus that you think you should mention? I think the major concern is that people uh, are need to understand that the vast majority of people who become infected will have an unpleasant illness, but they'll get over it. Uh, some people will even have a very minor illness, and that's the good news. But we need to take care of ourselves and our friends and relatives who are older and who have underlying illnesses. Again, I'll mention heart disease, any kind of lung disease for sure, immunocompromise, people with diabetes, folks who have been 20-year smokers, stuff like that. We need to be especially concerned for them and about them. Taking those steps to protect yourself will help protect those people in turn. Exactly. No one wants to be a dreaded spreader, right? So wash those hands, give them an elbow bump instead of a hug the next time you see them. That sounds good. My last question for you, I'm curious what's going on with a vaccine development for this virus or also even some the antiviral treatments that we've been hearing a little bit about. Do you have any idea about how far along those efforts are? Well, both of those, Gary, are absolutely important. They're the two major lines of research that are ongoing, and it's fair to say the lights are on in the laboratories at night. Everybody's working very hard on that. Now, the vaccine designed to prevent the illness, that will take us a while, and we hope everything goes according to plan. That's not always the case in science, as you know. And the estimates are... It'll take a year, maybe a year and a half to bring a vaccine actually to the point that we can distribute it to many hundreds of millions of people, Uh, not just here, but around the world. Now, the therapies are, those trials are already underway. And so my fingers are crossed that within perhaps a few quick months, we'll get some answers as to whether there is an antiviral drug that will have a beneficial effect on people who are seriously ill and require hospitalization. So I've got my fingers tightly crossed about that side. I was reading that there are, I think people, it sounds like scientists are testing drugs that they have developed for 
Ebola or HIV or SARS? Are, are those the kinds of drugs that you are aware of as well? That's exactly right. So these were drugs that had already been made, lots of studies already about them, even though they didn't work so well on Ebola. We had a lot of safety information about those drugs. We know how they're metabolized in the body. So we had a lot of information in effect, on the shelf. And so those are the drugs that are quickly being used in clinical trials because in certain early laboratory studies, it looked as though they would work against the coronavirus. So let's see how they work in people in a very controlled environment. All right. Lots to watch out for for this story. It will certainly keep on going, it sounds like. <laughs> um, Dr. William Schaffner, thank you so much for all the information. We appreciate your time. My great pleasure. So now that we've focused on the medical details, let's talk about another side of coronavirus, the worries about how bad it will get or how far it will spread, and even will you or someone you love get it? Maybe you're one of the many people scouring store shelves for hand sanitizer and feeling a little uneasy if you can't find any, or even paying way more than it usually costs. Or perhaps you're underreacting, a bit of denial, like, I'm sure those headlines are totally overblown, or even wondering if there's anything to the wild rumors about the virus and its origins. Here's the thing. Neither of those approaches is a great idea. But with a brand new health problem facing just about the entire world, how do you walk that line in managing this new stress? We're going to talk about that with clinical psychologist Seth Gillihan, who recently blogged about this for WebMD. And we'll put a link to that blog in our show notes for this episode. Dr. Gillihan is the host of the Think, Act, Be podcast. He's the author of books including The CBT Deck, Retrain Your Brain, and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy Made Simple. Dr. Gillihan, thanks for checking in with us. Well, Carrie, it's good to be back with you. Let's get right into it. How scared is too scared when it comes to this coronavirus situation? Or are you already going overboard if you even say you feel scared at all? Well, I think it's perfectly normal and understandable to feel afraid at times. I certainly have felt that when when it seems like every day there's something new that confronts us. You know, I go to my my usual weekend you know, trip to Starbucks in the early morning to do some writing. And I'm greeted with a sign at the counter that says we're no longer doing reusable cups in light of the COVID-19 outbreak, and there's a giant bottle of hand sanitizer greeting me. And, and so, you know, I have this sudden thought, wait, what am I doing here? Should I be here? Is this unsafe? <laughs> and so I, I think probably all of us, at least at times, are seized by those moments of fear. And and so that's so that's one side, but the other side is what's too much? Well, in terms of what makes sense, there's really no... There's no amount of fear that's necessary. We don't actually have to be afraid because either what the thing the thing we're afraid of isn't going to happen, so either we're not going to get coronavirus or we are someone that we love is and then it'll be a, a problem to deal with and you know we don't know how how bad it will be. Uh, it could be quite grave, obviously it already has been for for hundreds of people throughout the world. But but fearing it in advance doesn't actually solve anything or or help us really to prepare. So I think the balance you were describing in your introduction is a really nice way to think about it. Let's let's do what we can. Let's take 
reasonable steps, and then we can release the rest because the the fear is is the kind of unnecessary add-on. And then at the same time, there are those people who sort of you could maybe say they're in denial a little bit, like oh it's not that bad or oh it's being overhyped. Maybe they're even a little bit fatalistic, like if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Um, they might be underreacting or not preparing very much. Yeah, and and that can be a kind of paradoxical uh, expression of fear. That, and I I can certainly fall into that in this and and other situations myself. If I can just you know deny it or 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 pretend that I don't have I don't have any control over the situation, then I don't have to think about it. I don't have to feel afraid and. And yet, you know, there there are some things we can do. There are reasonable precautions we can take. You know, you see this kind of thing with with all kinds of medical fears. Some people who are afraid of having some kind of sickness who might you know, tend to be hypochondriacs will go to the doctor, you know, whenever there's any any sign they might be ill in some way. But then you have people who avoid going to the doctor because of fear, because they don't want to know. They just want to want to kind of let things run their course. They don't want to open up that possibility. Or change and, what they what they usually do. Right. Yes. Yeah. I just kind of want to go about their their routine as always. And and neither of those is probably the healthiest way to approach things. There is that that middle ground we can go for that's I think captured in in more of a mindful approach, which is being in reality as it is. It's not pretending things are better than they are. It's not pretending that, well, it's a coronavirus, the cold's a coronavirus, so really there's nothing to worry about. It's accepting that there's a lot of, of uncertainty and we don't really know what's going to happen and, and finding ways to to find a, a peace that transcends our that transcends our circumstances. It isn't dependent on, you know, are things going to go the way I want them to or not. We've been talking with a lot of people around um, the office about coronavirus, obviously. Um, there's been a lot of coronavirus in our lives at WebMD lately. And it's been surprising to me how it changes the way people think about just their everyday actions that they probably wouldn't have thought of. One person said, you know, she kind of describes herself as a fidgety, anxious person naturally. And she said, I find being told not to touch my face means all I think about is touching my face and how many times I do it every day. Um, do you have any realistic suggestions for how to lessen those touches or the inner panic that you get just you know by thinking about the little things like that? Well, I, I think a big problem when we're confronted like with something like this where we can't control ultimately what happens is that that lack of control triggers the fear and 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 the sense of of desperation or desperately wanting to to hang on to control in some way and so we don't take that that lack of control far enough and again not being fatalistic not saying don't wash your hands don't avoid people who obviously seem sick but i think if we if we really embrace that that lack of ultimate control we have then we can can loosen up a bit and realize that it's not, okay, it is not my full-time job to ensure that I or someone I love doesn't get coronavirus, that that's an impossible mission. And, and the more we fixate on it and focus on it, the more I think we're going we're gonna to be aware of any possible exposure. 
to that to that virus. You know, we can can start worrying about everything. I mean, because really, if you start tracing the paths of cross contamination, and this is not to not to freak anyone out, but I think we're all have at least at least halfway aware of this reality. I mean, everything kind of touches everything at some point. You know, someone has touched the counter and and someone else before that, you know, touched that person and and on and on and we can can really kind of drive ourselves to distraction. So I encourage people to again focus on what you can control. And when you find yourself worrying, check in with yourself and say, is this something that ultimately I can control? And and what can I release here? What is not ultimately uh, in my power to affect? Along those lines, someone who's often anxious or even has an anxiety disorder that they live with might start worrying about things that aren't happening right now, like what will happen when we're told to stay home from work or school or if mass quarantines happen. What helps someone not get too carried away with all that might happen, but also prepare, you know, take steps for things that might come down the road? Well, first, I would encourage someone to recognize the stories that the mind is creating because it's really easy to mistake those for reality, to start feeling like the future, like this possibility of a quarantine or possibility of work or school shutdown is something I have to solve in my head now. And I, I liken this to trying to play a chess game in advance the entire game without knowing what the other player is going to do. And there's no way to keep all that in mind. Like it's, I mean, I struggle to play chess in real time, like with just, <laughs> you know, the one move in front of me, which is probably why I don't actually play. But, <laughs> but if we, if we do the same thing with our, with our lives, we try to know exactly what, what we're going to do in, in any possibility, then again, we're going to, we're going to take on this unrealistic sense of control and responsibility that I better figure this out. So we can recognize when we're trying to do that and, and really distinguish, okay, that's a fantasy. Let me come back to reality. And that can be easier said than done for a lot of us because the mind likes to go there. Those thoughts tend to be sticky. So we need to find ways to, to ground ourselves in what's real. So I like to, to use our senses to do that. The sense of touch can be very grounding, uh, even something like, like, lying, um, like lying on the floor on our back and feeling the support of the floor, literally feeling yourself being grounded, um, looking around, taking in what you see. Okay, this is, this is what's happening right now. The, the sun is out, at least where I am. It's middle of the afternoon and recognizing that the that the rest these these stories and plans are just fantasies that the mind is running away with what if you're a person who's usually not anxious but you start to feel like i wonder if the seat on the subway car is clean or maybe i shouldn't take this trip right now because i'm worried about uh you know coming back with a with an illness what is rational in terms of the that way of thinking and what's maybe not well, I mean, again, there's some of these things are, are judgment calls, and, and it's hard to say, you know, for any, um, without knowing the, the particulars for any uh, situation. But I think, I think we, can, we can ask ourselves whether there's a good reason 
to to think that might be true. Like if you know someone just got up from a seat and they looked unwell and they were coughing and and kind of seemed sick, then it makes sense to avoid that seat. But if it's really just this kind of feeling, like mm, I have this this bad feeling, maybe this is maybe this is meaningful information. I mean, it could be, and I think it's it's good at times to listen to our intuition. But there's also this common error we make in our thinking called emotional reasoning. So if I th- if I feel like something is unsafe, or I feel like someone's mad at me, then it must be true. And and obviously that's not true. We're often mistaken. I remember once, I don't tend to be a nervous flyer, but I was getting on an airplane one time, and just as I was boarding this classical piece that's not played very often that I, I happened to love, and actually I, I had told my wife that uh, at my funeral I would love to have this piece played. So I'm getting on this plane, and they're playing my funeral piece. Oh, no. And I'm thinking, <laughs> oh, my goodness, like, it's a sign. I shouldn't get on this plane. I was traveling alone. I was... I was traveling to, to uh, my brothers at the time without my family, and I was thinking, oh, I should, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm making the wrong decision. I got on the plane anyway, and obviously nothing happened. But, but that, you know, we can, we can take those kinds of, of signs as, as omens or, or feelings as something meaningful. And, and what we know from research is the more we give in to the urge to, let's say, clean things that don't necessarily need to be cleaned, the more our brains will start to perceive those things as dangerous. So if you really want to want to be afraid of coronavirus, try to keep everything clean because <laughs> your brain is going to think, well, you must be doing this for a reason. It must be really dangerous. You're probably going to get a little sense of relief each time you clean, like, okay, I took care of that. I'm a little safer now. Your brain is going to learn a lesson from that, that that was a good thing you did because you felt that little reward. But it's going to also increase your your feeling of threat it's going to lower your confidence that you actually have cleaned everything so do what's what's reasonable but be careful about going beyond that because fear generally is never satisfied it's just going to grow expand to the next thing you're always going to want to take that extra step just to be sure just to be sure that's right and we might think like well let me just do the safe thing not counting the the cost on the other side of that which is not only uh, not keeping us safer realistically, but maintaining and strengthening that fear. That makes sense. One thing I think a lot of parents are thinking about is how to talk to their children about any coronavirus anxiety that they might have. Obviously, you don't want your, your kids to be afraid, even if, you know, no matter how you feel personally. Um, could you speak a little bit about how parents could help their children yeah, I think it's a good question. I mean, it's, you know, when I, I think about myself with kids who are 12, 9, and 5. And so, I mean, the first thing, obviously, is you want to, you know, meet them where they are in terms of, of you know, what their what their thoughts about it might be, what they might know about it already, and, and of course, how old they are and their developmental level. So you're going to talk about it differently with, you know, your 14-year-old than you are with your 3-year-old. And, you know... If, in general, I yeah, advise parents to be uh, matter of fact about it, uh, to um, you know, to be honest about you know their own concerns that the child asks. You know, are you are you worried about it? Are you afraid? Uh, but but not to dump their feelings on on the child. Certainly not to not to scare their kid with 
uh, their fears or, oh my God, I'm, I'm so afraid. And what if something happens to you? You know, which of course I can say as, as a parent myself, that's, you know, the, the, the worst thought I can imagine, but that's not something you want to you know, pass on to your kids. So I, I like to think of it as an opportunity to, to talk with kids about, or, or, or to, to demonstrate how, how it's possible to deal with this kind of fear, with this kind of anxiety, because there'll be many types of things like this that they'll you know, probably face in their lifetime. And, and so, you know, letting them know that, that, you know, maybe the most important thing isn't whether or not you get sick, but it's about how as a family, we're going to face anything that, that comes our way together that, you know, to focus on on love and uh, and connection and and supporting each other more than on you know are we or aren't we going to get sick, which I think is a challenge because I mean certainly the intentionally or not the, the media are I mean the 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 things you read in the media certainly uh, make it easy to feel like like a victim like we're just sitting here you know I'm watching the the blobs of red on these graphs of the U.S you know, expand and, and get bigger. And, you know, the, the toll is updated every day, the number of cases, the number of deaths. And, and so I, I'd want as a parent and, and I'd want to encourage other parents to, to reject that sense of, of being a victim, just sort of waiting for, for what's going to happen. And instead, you know, we're, we're going to, we're going to be who we are, regardless of what happens with this virus. We're going to love each other. We're going to be together. I mean, you don't, you don't have to say this, but you know, even if worst case scenario happens and, and someone gets it and dies from it, you know, we're, we're going to be together in this life for as long as we have. To your, the point you were speaking about earlier, that would help parents and children really focus on the things that they could control versus what they really have no control over. That's right. Exactly. And I like to as a personal practice, do that kind of thing first thing in the morning to to set our sights. You know, what what kind of day do I want to have today? Where do I want to focus my attention? Because that that really is where we we have some control. We can control to some extent uh, what kinds of of thoughts we dwell on. We can we can affect the types of behaviors that we do, and and we can decide what kind of presence we bring. You know, whether we allow our our minds to kind of spiral off unchecked into these into these frightening fantasies. Or if we determine, you know what, I want to be of service to people today. I want to show love. I want to experience the things that that are important to me. And that's what I'm going to focus on. And and the rest, the unknowns, we'll see what happens. Right. Certainly. There can also be an irrational side to situations like this. And it can get ugly, like when people stereotype who they think might have the virus, even though there's no good reason to do that. Why does that happen, and how can people counteract that impulse? Well, you're exactly right. We're we're often, I mean, as our our sense of fear and threat grows, it's easy to uh, to feel divided, to feel like it's it's us against uh, other groups, or to look for a scapegoat. And, you know, I, I really appreciate it. As you were describing the, you know, the sort of overview of where we find ourselves, 
it did occur to me that we're all we're all we are we are all in this together that that the whole you know planet has been uh, has been I mean the the virus is here it's on this earth and we can either choose to come together and do the best we can uh, and uh, and support each other or we can turn it into a truly hellish experience and and make it worse by uh, by dividing and and fighting amongst ourselves so so again i think you know asking ourselves who do i want to be through this crisis when when this is over and done how do i want to have conducted myself who do i want to have been what version of myself do i want to have brought to the people around me and to others in the world and that can you know get us out of that focus on fear because fear is so narrowing fear is fear really encourages a kind of uh, self-focus and and a and a preoccupation with whether or not I'm going to be okay but if we can expand that frame and and move toward what we love I think love love and fear are kind of uh, opposite ends of a seesaw and we can we can grow one by shrinking the other. Dr. Seth Gillihan, thank you so much for talking with us and for helping us get a new perspective on how this virus affects all of us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Carrie. Be well. Okay, one last thing on this topic, and it's our tweak of the week. In those moments where you start to feel anxious about COVID-19 or any current events, take a pause and let go of the tension that's building up in your body. Here's how Dr. Gillihan put it in his recent blog. Start with a calming breath in and exhale for a count of five. Do that three times. As you inhale again, raise your shoulders up to your ears, and then drop them down again as you exhale slowly. Then do that three times. End with three more calming breaths, slowly in and out. It's easy to get stressed and overwhelmed by the latest updates on coronavirus. Releasing the physical tension you feel can help you reset your mind, too. Thanks again to Dr. William Schaffner and to Dr. Seth Gillihan for talking with us and to you for listening. Please make sure you've subscribed to our show so you don't miss any of our great episodes. And just a reminder that you can keep up with WebMD's coverage on coronavirus and all things health and wellness on our social channels, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All right, that's it for us this week. Hope you can join us next time.